Well, we're in Colossians chapter 4 now. Uh, if you're just joining us, we've been in the book of Colossians for several months this summer, nearly wrapping it up. We've heard at the beginning of Colossians about the glory of Christ. There's a rich theological reflection that Paul has on who Jesus is and why that matters for us. And then he turns in the second half of the book where we are now to discuss how this impacts our life and what it should change for Christians. And today we're going to hear some about commitment, about prayer and the public witness of Christians and what it means to be committed to those things. I wonder what you think of when you hear the word commitment. What do you think of when you hear the word commitment? Uh, sometimes when we think of commitment and scripture, we may think of the apostles. And if you're like me and you kind of geek out on medieval and renaissance history, maybe a, a, an image from Michelangelo or Caravaggio comes to mind. And you think about these kind of beautiful paintings of the apostles' suffering. <laughs> uh, and even in the midst of these paintings, uh, the, the violence is so stylized that it, it seems kind of beautiful, honestly. Uh, we look at it and we think of the commitment of the apostles in this sort of attractive way. Uh, I think that maybe that's misleading. Several weeks ago, two weeks ago to be exact, I received a, a, a text through a secure app from one of our international workers, and this brother sent me a series of texts followed by videos of uh, one of the church leaders who he works closely with who was being arrested. And in this, these videos, you can see the church being turned out, forced out of their building, uh, the police manhandling people, uh, pushing them around. Uh, you can see um, yelling. You can see basically chaos. Uh, in the midst of this sort of persecution, there is no, there's no beauty. It's nasty. It's brutal. And it's terrifying, honestly. Even from a distance, from me who lives across the sea, to see this happening. And yet, what this brother asked me was, would you please pray for the strength of these leaders who have been taken into custody? Would you pray that their faith would stand firm in the midst of this? And would you pray as well for our church members at his church that they would be prepared for the same? Because we know that day is coming. Commitment. Commitment looks like a belief that prayer matters, that asking God's, God for things matters. And yet, his commitment, this brother's commitment, did not lead him to ask for immediate release, for relief, or ease, security, or comfort for these brothers, but that in the midst of the fire, they would stand firm. That's commitment. Commitment to prayer commitment to the gospel, even in the face of persecution, and commitment to be a public witness for Christ, come what may. And that actually is the outline of our passage today. As we're coming to the conclusion of this book, this is the last passage before Paul turns to his closing greetings. I want you to listen for this movement as I read it. There's kind of this natural movement in Paul's thought. How does the gospel affect Christians? Well, Paul commands them to commit themselves to prayer, which leads him 
to make specific requests for himself, that they would pray for those who share the gospel, and then for their own public witness, that they would live in a very particular way in front of the watching world. Let me read Colossians chapter 4, starting in verse 2. If you don't have a copy of the text, it's up here on the screen behind me. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Like our brother who is suffering this persecution, Paul has the the same instinct, the same gut reaction. Commit yourselves to prayer. And that's the first thing we see here. Commit yourselves to prayer. Prayer should be a standard part of every Christian's life. Paul begins with a command here. He says, continue steadfastly in prayer. In my translation, some of your translations have devote yourselves to prayer, which I think is actually even a better translation. The verb here implies persistence. The emphasis is on regular and continued action. Christians should have a standing commitment to prayer. This same verb is used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe how the earliest Christians were committed day by day to worshiping together in the temple. You see that day by day action there or how a soldier is committed to his officer or an employee is committed to his work. This is someone who continues regularly to attend a certain action. So prayer should be like this. We should be committed to it such that it's a standard part of our lives. What do you commit yourselves to? Honestly, what do you commit yourselves to? Hobbies, career advancement, caring for your own children, the next big adventure, education, home renovation projects, writing a book. Anytime we commit ourselves to something, it requires planning and discipline. And so also here, we plan, uh, that is, we set, a, we, we set a, a schedule, when and how we will complete a certain action, and then it requires discipline to fulfill that. I said I'd do it Tuesday morning, Tuesday morning comes, I have to, I have to act. That's the sort of model that our prayer should follow. We should be committed to prayer in such a way that just like we're committed to the other major parts of our lives, we plan it out, and then we have the discipline to follow through. Prayer is like breathing for a Christian. It's like breathing for a Christian. Jesus uses this powerful metaphor of being born again. Well, if you're born again, you're alive. Anyone who's alive breathes. That's what it means to be a Christian, is to have this breath where we turn to God regularly, giving him our, our requests, turning to him with our joys, with our sorrows, uh, praising him for who he is, knowing that he is the one that we have to do with at all moments of our lives. Jesus' example is so poignant for us here. He spoke to his father in public at times, and he often withdrew as well. 
and had longer times of focused communion with God. To be committed to prayer in the way that Jesus was means that prayer it has this both informal and formal aspect. Informal in the sense that it's just what we do as we're going about our lives. A sentence whispered here or there to the Lord because we know he's listening. And also this desire, this hunger to withdraw, to step away from it all and to commit ourselves to the Lord because we know that he's there, that he's listening, that he engages us. Let me offer one more illustration that I hope is helpful for, for showing how prayer is a commitment in our lives. I think you could compare it with eating. <laughs> uh, it would be fair to say that I'm committed to eating, quite committed to eating. I do it every day. Uh, and I'll assume for the sake of argument that you are committed to eating too. Uh, when I have this commitment to eating, I go three times a day, very regularly, uh, at a pre-scheduled time, and I, I set aside time for it. But as well, throughout the day, I have snacks in my desk at my office. I know exactly where they're located in the cabinet at my house. And so I have both formal and informal, shorter times and longer times, where I commit myself to eating. Prayer should be the same to us. Commit yourselves, devote yourselves to prayer. It is for us the hunger of the Christian soul. Committing yourself to prayer means that prayer should be a standard part of your daily life. I know already, if you're being honest, <laughs> some of you will say, but prayer is boring to me. Honestly, I just don't pray because it doesn't attract me. I pray for everything I can think of, and I look up at, and it's been like three minutes. <laughs> what do you mean you could spend as long at prayer as you could at a meal? How does that work? Well, prayer requires alertness. That's the next thing that Paul tells the Colossians here. He says, be watchful in your prayers. Or some of your translations have, keep alert. Again, I, I like that translation, keep alert. Boredom, sleepiness, and distraction are the constant dangers facing every Christian. The Bible acknowledges this too. The Bible doesn't have some sort of Pollyannish, uh, pie-in-the-sky view as if as soon as you're a Christian it becomes super easy and you just kind of turn to God in prayer every moment of your lives. No, quite the opposite. The disciples specifically turn to Jesus and say, can you teach us to pray? It's not coming naturally to us. In Luke chapter 18, Jesus tells a parable, and this is so instructive. Luke 18, verse 1, it says, Jesus told this parable so that his disciples would keep praying and not lose heart. Have you lost heart, brothers and sisters? The Bible is totally aware of that and prepared for those sort of struggles in prayer. The disciples themselves fall asleep when Jesus is praying. <laughs> I mean, if you want sympathy in your struggles in prayer, turn to Scripture. There are plenty of examples here. In fact, that passage in Matthew 26 where Jesus is in the garden, the disciples fall asleep, uses the exact same two words here. You recall what's going on there. Jesus is preparing to be executed. He knows he's going to be betrayed. He knows that his own death is imminent. The tide of public criticism has risen against him, and he's going to die. 
And in his moment of need, he says, I've got to get away and pray. And so he takes the disciples with him. And he says, please stay here and pray with me. Watch and pray. Those are our two words, watch and pray. And they fall asleep. They fall asleep. And he comes back to him and says, watch and pray. Be alert. This word for watch can also mean be awake. These are the struggles that we have, are they not? Watch and pray. Be alert and pray. How can we do this? Allow me to step aside from the text for one moment and just offer some practical advice. Pray out loud. Pray out loud. When we pray inside of our heads, it's pretty easy for the other voices there to take over, to push out the prayer, and for us to immediately lose lose uh, lose the, the sense of what we're praying for, lose the sense of urgency, and begin to wander in our thoughts. Uh, and this praying out loud is actually something that is encouraged directly in Scripture. You remember in Matthew chapter 6, right before Jesus answers his disciples and teaches them how to pray, uh, he, he tells them, don't be like the hypocrites who stand on the street corners and pray publicly there. But do you notice what he says? He doesn't say, pray in your hearts. That's not what he says. He says, go into your room, close the door behind you, and in private, pray to your father. He clearly assumes that they're going to be praying verbally, audibly, out loud. It's hard to imagine a better way to stay on track than to just pray out loud. I've certainly found it to be helpful. I hope that you will too. And this idea of the prayer closet is kind of the historic. The King James uses that phrase, go into your closet and pray. It just means a private room. This idea has been significant in the history of Christianity for many generations before us. It's ironic that it's dropped out of practice right now in our own generation, the, the, the prayer closet. And at the same time, we find ourselves so deeply distracted. I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's a coincidence. So brothers and sisters, pray out loud. And secondly, as we spoke about a moment ago, schedule it in. Schedule it into your day. Right. Uh, if if you uh, need to get up 15 minutes early, or set aside some time during your lunch break, I know your lives are busy. Find a time to set aside for prayer. And pray out loud. Let us be committed to prayer in this way, and let's fight distraction. Be alert. Paul's words here are intended to encourage us in the struggles that we have. Again, this word "be alert" means be awake. <laughs> Don't fall asleep in the midst of prayer. Do what it takes to stay awake. I'll give one more uh, exam, uh, one more encouragement, real practical encouragement, but we'll come to that in a moment. First, I want to look at what the next thing that Paul says here. He, he says that their prayers should be fueled by thanksgiving. He, he says, uh, be watchful in it with thanksgiving. This re- should remind us that prayers are not merely a set of requests. Uh, do some of you adults have prayers that look a lot like your kids' wish list for Santa? <laughs> uh, it's just, please give me this, God, 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 amen. <laughs> uh, I think we're missing something if we merely have requests. Don't hear what I'm not saying. Your requests matter to God. Paul's going to make requests in just a moment. 
And they are an integral part of our prayers. However, if that's all we ever pray for, it's no wonder that we get bored in the midst of prayer. Our prayers are interactions between us and the eternal God. I think what's, what's lacking oftentimes is this thankfulness. And the reason that thankfulness is lacking is because we don't know the Lord like we should. If you know God, and I confess that I struggle as well. I don't stand up here as someone who has it all together and who's, who has prolonged times of prayer without struggles. But when we know the Lord, we will naturally turn around and give thanks to him. The father who gave his own son for you, the son who put on flesh, stepped down, condescended from glory to dwell among us. He gave his own life. He was obedient all the way to the graphic death on the cross, his own suffering and sorrows there. He who did this for us, when we know these things, how will we not turn around and give thanks to him when we don't find our hearts naturally overflowing with gratitude for God and for what he's done for us? It's probably because we need to know him more. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis, who writes a little bit about this and uh, writes about how some books that are supposedly devotional actually aren't helpful for us in this way. Rather, it's the deep books. Let me read this quote. It's up here as well. For my own part, I tend to find the doctrinal books often more helpful in devotion than the devotional books. And I rather suspect that the same experience may await many others. I believe that many who find that, quote, nothing happens when they sit down or kneel down to a book of devotion would find that the heart sings unbidden while they are walk, working their way through a tough bit of theology with a pipe in their teeth and a pencil in their hand. The point here is not the pipe. <laughs> the point is that we need doctrine. We need theology, friends. We often have an allergic reaction to theology when somebody says it because we've been introduced either to bad theology or to boring theology. Theology is just the study of God. And I, I will just say that for myself, J.I. Packer and Elizabeth Elliot and C.S. Lewis are some of these who, when I turn to them, I find myself not intending to go to prayer, and yet with prayers coming out, giving praise to God for who he is because I know him better on the other side of it. And I can do one better than this, one better than Lewis. If we want a doctrinal book, turn your scripture reading into prayer. This is where we know God. His word is intended to be more exciting to us than the Lord of the Rings, or maybe the Lord of the Rings bores you. Whatever it is that you like reading or watching, whatever stories captivate your imagination, Scripture is intended to be more engaging to you than that. When you read Scripture, if you find it boring, perhaps it's because you need to turn it back to prayer. You need to have that immediate conversation with the Lord. God, I literally don't understand what's going on in this passage. Will you please help me? God, I find this to be extremely challenging to me. Am I falling short somehow? God, I want this promise 
but I feel so far from you. Turn your scripture reading immediately into prayer. And in so doing, you will be communing with God. That's the point. He's speaking to us, and he intends for us to speak back to him. Uh, and this is timely, but I, it's providential. I didn't actually intend for this, but the, the company Crossway Publishers gave us a bunch of copies of this book called Praying the Bible, which is just, you can see it's really short. It's like less than 100 pages. Uh, and we've got 50 copies of them out here. They just gave it to us as a resource for us to give away to our church members or anybody who's here. Uh, and so please take one, uh, one per family. It is just a, a very simple encouragement and explanation of how when you're reading Scripture, you can turn it immediately to prayer. This guy who wrote this book, Don Whitney, he particularly encourages the reading of the Psalms, but he talks about how you can do it in other passages as well. I hope that it helps you, brothers and sisters. It's been an encouragement to me in this way. So prayer should be uh, the center uh, of our Christian lives in many ways. It should be a standard part of our Christian lives. And part of what we have to do is know the Lord, especially through his word. And that will then lead us to thankfulness. Um, Paul teaches the, commission, uh, the Christians to commit themselves to prayer, to stay alert, to give thanks. And then he gives them a specific request, namely for himself. That's the second thing we see here. Paul uh, encourages these Christians to pray for those who preach the gospel. Paul's command to the Col- Colossians uh, is that they commit themselves to prayer, not merely in the abstract, but he gives them a specific set of requests, namely pray for us. He says, pray for us. And you may scratch your head and say, well, who's the us? If you go back to chapter 1, verse 1, you see that Paul lists Timothy as a co-author with him. So he's certainly thinking of himself and Timothy, another fellow minister of the gospel. And also, he's thinking of Epaphras, who is a co-worker with Paul. And he mentioned several times through this letter uh, a friend from the Colossian church who's actually with Paul in his imprisonment at this time. So he's saying... Pray for those of us who are laboring for the gospel. And perhaps these brothers are imprisoned with him as well. He says, pray that God may open a door for the word. This means ask God for opportunities for the gospel to proceed into people's lives. That they would believe in Jesus. People who don't know him would come to know him. People who don't believe in Jesus would find hope in him and would put their trust in him. This phrase, an open door, is a relatively common metaphor in this era. Uh, we find it several other places in Scripture. Let me just read two of them for you here. Acts fourteen twenty seven, When Paul and Barnabas arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Paul and Barnabas returning after a big mission trip, saying, we were able to share the gospel with a lot of Gentiles, a lot of non-Jews, and many of them believed. This is the open door. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 16, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. So it doesn't mean that there's no opposition, but in the midst of opposition, there are opportunities. Paul says, please, Ask God to do this. And his request clearly implies he believes God's able to do that. God is at work in the preaching of the gospel. 
to create opportunities and to create open hearts so that people do turn to Jesus and do find hope in him. If Christians love Jesus and want more people to find hope in him, why wouldn't we pray for open doors? This is a great request for us to add to our own prayer lists. Then Paul gives a bit more detail about what his message is in the middle of verse 3. He says, pray for an open door to declare the mystery of Christ. Paul has used this phrase, the mystery or the mystery of Christ, several times already throughout the letter. And he describes it in chapter 1, verse 27, most clearly. Uh, If you just turn back a page, he says that the mystery is Christ himself. The mystery is Christ himself, that he dwells among his people in the church, that Jesus, who was a Jew, came not just for Jews, but for Gentiles, that the ethnic treasure of the Jews is being shared with the entire world, that the hope of the world hangs on Jesus, and that he himself, he says, is the hope of glory, that those who know him will be included in the life of God now and into eternity. So Paul says, pray that we'd be able to speak the mystery of Christ, all these things, so that those who hear this message would put their hope in Jesus and would turn to him. Their sins would be forgiven. They would be welcomed into the family of God. They become our brothers and sisters and receive the inheritance that Jesus earned for us. And now we get the first hint in this letter that Paul himself is in prison. If you've been with us earlier in the series, you know we've mentioned that. This is one of Paul's prison epistles. But he, he hasn't mentioned it until this very verse. And then he says one thing at the very end of the, of the book. And he says here that he is in prison on account of the mystery of Christ. On account of the mystery of Christ, I am in prison. At the end of verse 3. Allow me to point something else out here so that we don't miss a certain irony Paul is behind locked prison doors and he doesn't ask for open doors for himself but for the gospel. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't ask for his own freedom but for the word of God to go forward in power, for open doors for the word of God. This reminds me of uh, my brother who I mentioned earlier uh, who's ministering across uh, in a foreign country. His commitment to Jesus, like Paul's, is concerned more with the progress of the gospel than with personal security or immediate comfort. And Paul's words here, I think we have to be careful as we read them. I'm pulling them out, uh, but let's, let's continue to read them in the context here. There's no hint of superiority. Paul doesn't mention this in order to gain sympathy for himself. I think he mentions this to show the value of Christ. You want to know the value of the gospel? You want to know the value of anybody's beliefs? How much are they willing to suffer for it? Paul's still in prison as he writes this letter for the sake of the gospel. He is committed to joyfully serve Jesus, so much so that when they say, you know what, if you stop preaching the resurrection of Jesus, these doors fly open and you go out. He says, No thanks. He's worth it to me. The good news about Jesus is a rich treasure that Paul is willing to endure captivity for. And there's something very instructive for us here in this text 
from uh, this, this brother, from me. There's an example of the shape that our prayers should take, particularly in the midst of suffering. We can ask, we can ask for relief from suffering. If you turn over to Philemon, you'll, which is a kind of companion letter to this, also written to one specific individual in the church of Colossians, uh, in the Colossian church, you see Paul does say, I hope to be released on account of your prayers for me. So he knows they're praying for his release, and he's thankful for that. And yet, what he's doing here is, is beyond that. So asking for relief is part of the portfolio of Christians' prayers. But it's not the entirety of it. We will do well to remember Jesus' own words, his warnings to anyone who would come after him about taking up their cross, about the need to be prepared to lose your life, about the willingness to give up even the closest relationships, those with your parents, your spouse, your closest friends, your own children. Your allegiance to Jesus must be greater, he warned. Because what would it profit you to gain the whole world and to lose your soul, to forfeit your soul? On the other hand, Paul's willing endurance of all things gains this approval from Jesus who said, anyone who's ashamed of me and my words, I'll be ashamed of him on that day. But anyone... Anyone who accepts me in my words, he says, he will gladly give the joyful welcome on that day. Welcome home, good and faithful servant. Now that's a wonder for us who live in the comfort and security of the West. Paul doesn't demand his rights. Paul doesn't demand his rights. He lives into the suffering Suffering is not an incidental part of the Christian life. Brothers and sisters, read your Bibles if you don't believe me. Suffering is the norm. It's meant to be the norm. And I take that very seriously. I myself suffer very little. And I consider this to be a sober reminder to me. Following Jesus is worth it, though, whatever it costs you. That's what Paul's words remind us of here the gospel for which i am in prison he says whoever loses his life for my sake jesus says will find it paul has a single eye for jesus paul who suffered so much shows the value of christ by his willing endurance of all paul only mentions this to show the worth of christ i think that's why i make it clear he says which is how I ought to speak. A specific obligation is laid on Paul as an apostle. He has a unique duty to preach Christ that's actually different from any of us. He says in 1 Corinthians 9, necessity has been laid upon me. That same idea is uh, embedded in what he says here about uh, being obliged to speak. But this doesn't imply for the rest of us that there's no, no need to speak up. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But before we do, I ask... Please pray for us who labor among you. Please pray these things for us. Pray for myself, for Mark, for the other elders, for your Bible study leaders, for your Sunday school teachers, that they would be willing, that we would be willing, to 
to suffer all for the sake of Christ, that we would never dishonor him, that we would not choose ease and comfort, but joy in Christ and eternal life. Please pray for us who preach the gospel. Finally, Paul says, turning from talk about his own public witness, now he he turns to the Colossian church and he reminds them that they also have a, a responsibility to speak about Christ. And particularly, he focuses on their relationships. He says, be intentional in your relationships with those who don't believe in Jesus. He wants them to be thoughtful, intentional. Well, he himself has this unique obligation. He sees for the Christians as well some calling to speak about Christ. So he says, first, be wise or walk in wisdom toward, outsider, toward outsiders. This walk in wisdom is a reference to lifestyle. We've seen this language about walking before. In the ancient world, walking is everyday life. Everywhere you go, you have to walk. Paul says your lifestyle should show this same sort of wisdom so that a casual observer will look at you differently. Uh, He says, walk in wisdom toward those who are outside, which no doubt means those who are outside the church, non-Christians. There's a clear line in Paul's mind between those who are in Christ and those who are outside, church members and non-church members. This, however, does not lead him to encourage some sort of competitive us-them mentality. Quite the opposite. He says, live in a way that your lives will be winsome, attractive to those outside, so that your actions show a deeper wisdom that draws people to Jesus. Be thoughtful about how your lives are lived. What do your actions and your reactions show non-Christians who you know? about Jesus. Christians should, excuse me, non-Christians should be asking this question about church members. How do they treat their spouses? How do they treat their children? These are the passages we just went through in the, in the previous section of Colossians chapter 4. How do employees interact with their bosses? How do bosses manage those under their care? Controlling or in a way that actually leads to, to flourishing within their organization? Non-Christians look at the lives of Christians and they make judgments about Jesus based on our lives. Walk in wisdom toward those who are outside. Make the most of every opportunity, Paul says. And this phrase means something like, it literally means buying up the time, buying up the opportunity. You can imagine a merchant going out into the marketplace and looking for a deal. And when he finds one, he's quick to take advantage of it. We also should be watching for opportunities watching for opportunities where our lives and our wisdom will lead people to desire Jesus. Paul says, then season your speech with grace so that it will be attractive to non-Christians. Look at verse 6. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Or, Or literally, it reads something like, let your speech always be with grace. This translation here, let your speech always be gracious, it, it loses something for me, but literally it says, let your speech always have grace in it, like the seasoning of salt. Paul uses a metaphor uh, for salt, seasoning food, and I think we all instinctively know what he means. Too little salt and your food is flavorless, too much and that item becomes disgusting, just the right amount. And you say, I'd like some more of that. 
I'd like some more of that. Do non-Christians say this when you talk about grace? Our speech should be so flavored with grace, not with platitudes on the one hand or with arguments about secondary cultural issues on the other hand, but with grace, the grace of Christ, so that people want to know more. And you'll see here, this actually leads people, non-Christians, to ask questions. Paul uh, implies that when our speech is like this, when it has this sort of seasoning of grace, then people will ask us for more. Look at that last phrase in verse 6, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. We give answers to questions, brothers and sisters. (laughs) Our speech should be so seasoned that people begin to question they want to know more about Jesus. Uh, the, and the, the, the Greek here, again, is very helpful as we're talking about this sort of winsome speech. One of the characteristics of it is that we should give an answer to each person. To each person. The NIV, which I love, obscures this and says to everyone. That's not what it says. The Greek literally says to each individual person. We should have an answer prepared. You should know the people in your lives so well that you can craft a response that's personalized for them. So that you can say, you know what this, you know what this lady needs to hear? I do. <laughs> and I'm going to give her that part of the promises of God because I want to hold that out for her. I want her to, sh- to see the glory of Christ. Christians should know Christ well enough that they can bring out treasures new and old, to use Jesus' phrase, from the storehouse of our knowledge of him. Be like a diamond merchant who has one great jewel. And you know it so well that you can hold it up from any aspect, from any perspective, and point out the facets of it, the cuts of it, the glory in it. To each individual person, a specific answer. The promises of Christ are so many that we should be ready to pick out one. We should have a whole multitude of them ready. This is not just some memorized performance with a few key verses. The knowledge of Christ should prepare us to bring out all sorts of individualized, personalized, winsome answers. In many ways, Paul's teaching in Acts is a perfect example of this. In Acts 13, we see him in a synagogue. In the synagogue, of course, he's quoting from the Jewish scriptures. He walks these Jews through the promises of the Old Testament. What it is that Jesus fulfilled about these prophecies. How it was that the Messiah has completed all of God's promises. And then you turn to Acts chapter 17, and you see he's, he's making reference to the religious practices of the day, to the, the, the inscriptions on their own idols. And then he quotes from their own Greek Poets and playwrights. I mean, we should be prepared from Caesar to Shakespeare to the Beatles to be ready with an answer for people, to quote exactly what it is because Jesus answers the longing of every heart. I love what St. Augustine said. He said, our hearts are restless until they take their rest in you, O Lord. That's the truth. And our speech should be so seasoned with grace that people see, yeah, you know what? You're right. I realize that there is some answer there that I long for. There's a question that I've been asking, 
And I think your Jesus has the answer. Will you tell me more about him? Be wise in your actions, gracious in your words, prepared to give an answer to each person according to their needs. And let us commit ourselves to praying for such opportunities and to praying for those who labor in the word, both here at Crossroads and across the world. Let me pray now. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And I pray, Lord, help us to press into him and to find him. Forgive us, Lord, for our boredom. Forgive me for my boredom in prayer. Oh, Lord, make your word come alive to us, I pray, so that we, we would be cut by it, by the living and active word. Do a good work in us, Father. Free us, please, from our love of comfort. Help us to commit ourselves in prayer to you. And I pray, help us to commit ourselves in support to those who suffer. We do pray for our brothers and sisters who are making sacrifices day by day for you. Help us to support them as we, as we can. We do pray that they would stand firm in the face of persecution and for ourselves, that when that day comes, we also would gladly take up the cross and follow you. Please be at work among us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.